Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So around this time of year especially, I I really love to get into a little extra, uh, you know, Chinese culture, Chinese history, uh, and then on this show, Chinese Invention. And we've covered various topics already on the show with strong Chinese roots, and I was thinking maybe this would be the time to discuss gunpowder and fireworks. Uh, but then, as is often the case uh, when we're researching this show, I started looking up sources, started reading uh, about the topics, and in the process discovered something even more exciting. More exciting than fireworks. Yes, and, and I, I realize it may sound alarming uh, that it is more <laughs> exciting than fireworks, but it is. And it is the matchstick. Oh, I thought you were going to say like quantum fireworks no, or something. No, no, no. The, the, the common matchstick. And uh, indeed, when I told my wife about this topic uh, for the week, her initial response was just to laugh and say, oh, yeah, that's way more exciting than fireworks. I'm with you, man. I think she's wrong and you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, here's the thing. I- I'm not going to argue that fireworks are not exciting because fireworks are tremendous. Uh, mm. uh, everybody loves fireworks except for those, I guess, who are – Frightened by them. And dogs. Dogs don't love fireworks. But anyway, humans tend to love fireworks. And we'll probably come back to fireworks and gunpowder in the future. But the modern matchstick is indeed amazing. And you, but you just might need to see it again with fresh eyes to you know, try and see it uh, through the eyes of a child. Yeah, why do they need to tell children not to play with matches? Because they're irresistible. Because they're yeah. awesome. They're like really fun to play with. They, they are. I mean, granted, yes, they are, they are potentially dangerous as well. But, but yeah, just think of the experience of it. Here's this wooden stick, uh, you know, generally tipped with like a reddish coating. Uh, you get it out of this cool little box. Even the matchbox was always interesting because it's like this doll-sized casket or a bug-sized casket, right? It feels archaic somehow. It's yeah. like something out of uh, Indiana Jones. It slides open as if it should have some kind of artifact of significance inside. Yeah, and then you pull out the match, you strike it across the pad, and then it ignites a brilliant spark. Ooh, that sound gets the endorphins rushing through me. It does. It's just something... Uh, exciting, calming, comforting uh, in that sound. <laughs> I should realize I'm really making myself sound like a pyromaniac. I'm not somebody who burns down buildings. Well, think of also the cinematic uses of, of the match striking in the darkness, mm-hmm. flaring up and then coming back down to a nice, uh, small, uh, you know, little uh, little uh, uh, dollop of flame. Used to great effect in a lot of horror movies. I, yeah. I think, uh, was, it, was it The Conjuring that had a really creepy uh, match lighting in the dark scene? Oh, I I mean, I feel like it, it shows up in just a lot of different shows. And it's mm-hmm. often a sense of mystery, a sense of, uh, you know, of, of discovery. Sometimes there's a jump scare in there. But a lot of times it is just it, – it sums up the idea of, of using human technology, human fire technology uh, to conquer the darkness. Uh, but also like really driving home how – potent the darkness is because there's that flare there then it's reduced and then eventually especially if it's a horror film uh the uh, uh the, the flame of the match is going to reach the fingertips and the the hero or heroine will go ah and, and then it'll be dark again right but the light from the match in the darkness is almost kind of like a little bubble of air at the bottom of the ocean you yeah. know it's the it's this tiny uh little lifeline yeah, and it's just with that one little spark, it's enough to bring an oven then to full life, to, to light a lantern, uh, to, to bring your hot water heater back online, to, to, to save lives through a, a campfire on a, on, a, you know, on, a, on a winter day. Right, yeah, fire bootstrapping. Yeah, I mean, it can also, again, it can prove massively destruction if it is misused. Uh, but uh, but there, the, the matchstick itself is, uh, is, is a fascinating uh, artifact, a fascinating invention, I think, to focus focus on in discussion of fire technology in general. So this is going to be a multi-part exploration of uh, of fire technology and the invention of the match. And I think today we're going to be focusing primarily on the the early side of this, like what came before matches and things that might have been called matches but that are not exactly like the matches we think of today. Right. We will not actually get to the modern, uh, you know, chemical match or the safety match uh, in this episode, but we're going to cover a lot lot of ground, uh, really just coming to terms with humanity's uh, conquest of fire. So to state the obvious, fire is not a human invention. 
I, could, I suppose you could consider it a discovery, uh, though, because it, it does occur naturally in the world that humans evolved to thrive in. But it's, it's not even really a human discovery. It's more of a, a pre-human discovery. Yeah, there's evidence of non-human animals in some ways interacting with fire. We've talked on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before about the evidence of like uh, Australian birds of prey or at least by, by many anecdotes, sometimes using wildfires in order to help catch prey. Uh, and if, so if those stories are true, that's like in birds even. But clearly in many of the higher primates that we're related to, there's a kind of uh, – there's a kind of like awareness of fire and a kind of regard for it that borders on interaction and use. Right. And then some of the, the you know, prehistoric examples we'll be touching on will not even be uh, examples of Homo sapiens using fire uh, but, but other uh, of, our, of our kin. Yeah. Our hominid relatives, yes. yes. So uh, we, we've talked about fire before on our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We had a, a, a wonderful, I think, pair of episodes uh, with the title, A World Without Fire. Uh, and uh, in that, we touched on, on the three basics that you need in order to have fire itself. You're going to need heat, you're going to need fuel, and you're going to need oxygen. And so the resulting fire isn't so much a thing as it is an event, the rapid combustion manifested in light, flame, and heat. Yeah, sometimes people like to ask, like, what is fire made of? You know, mm -hmm. is it like is it like a, a gas? Is it a solid? Uh, sometimes people assume it's some kind of plasma. Fire, fire is a mixture of things going on. So it's like a rapid release of gases that are happening at high heat and uh, chemical reactions going on in the air. Yeah, and really, I think one thing that that is going to be neat to ruminate on as we discuss these, especially these early technologies, is that it is largely through fire manipulation, innovations and inventions that we reach these points where we can treat fire like a thing rather than an event. Like it is a management of the event that makes it into a thing or a seeming thing that is tangible. Yeah, it makes a, a verb into a noun. It yeah. makes, a, makes an event into a substance. Now, interestingly enough, this trifecta of ingredients necessary for fire, we're not always in place on Earth. Not at all. Yeah, this is something we discussed in that World Without Fire episode. I mean, that, that's kind of what the title is getting at. Uh, heat was, you know, certainly uh, always a, a thing here on Earth, but it wasn't until 540 million years ago, the beginning of the Paleozoic era, that photosynthetic organisms terraformed the planet's atmosphere into an oxygenated balance capable of providing that necessary second ingredient of oxygen. Right. So previously on Earth, there would have been a lot of like oxygen compounds, but mm -hmm. not just like tons of free oxygen in the atmosphere. And then there's that third ingredient of fuel, and it was indeed the last ingredient really to become available here uh, because uh, what, what do you need to have like proper fuel? What do we think of as fuel for a fire? Terrestrial plant matter, and that was scarce uh, in the, you know, the early ages of the planet. The earliest evidence of charred vegetation dates back to a mere 440 million years ago. Yeah, so I remember talking about this in that episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but it, it's a weird thing to think that in addition to being the water planet, you know, Earth is the planet with liquid water unlike the burning hot or frozen other uh, terrestrial worlds we mm -hmm. would find. Uh, but Earth is also the fire planet. I mean, I think I'm correct in saying that except for maybe in some very weird momentary exceptions. There's nowhere else in the solar system that can support fire. The oxygen and the fuel are not present. So eventually humans and human ancestors came along and they would have definitely uh, – by that point, they would have encountered periodic examples of fire, of wildfire. Um, and, and this would be the result of uh, generally lightning strikes or mm -hmm. I think that the prime candidate. Uh, but also you would have seen fire occasionally from things like volcanic activity, falling rocks that managed to spark uh, correctly to create uh, a spark much like flint and steel as we'll, we'll get into flint and steel uh, in a bit here. Um, and, uh, and then also there's the spontaneous combustion of organic materials. But lightning would have been the big one. Now, certainly at this point, many, uh, many animals had already learned to game fire and overcome it. Uh, organic entities cannot endure fire, really, but the, many have evolved to survive it and even depend on wildfire cycles. We see this in plants especially. Sure. 
But early uh, Homo species, uh, members of the, the Homo genus, uh, which Homo sapiens are, are a member of, uh, they would have found this sparkling brilliance, uh, you know, the, the result of a, of a lightning strike on some dry wood, for example, or resulting a, a, a moving a spread of wildfire or something. Uh, they would have realized that it offered a number of vital properties, uh, most obviously heat and light. But uh, over time, it would prove valuable for a number of, uh, of secondary uh, um, uh, purposes as well, such as protection, tool tempering, plant selection, cooking, vegetation clearing, hunting, pottery, food preservation, and pest control. But at a very basic level, it brought light into the darkness and heat into the cold. It allowed these wandering diurnal um, omnivores to thrive in otherwise limiting times and places. For example, it enabled early humans and Neanderthals to inhabit cold weather regions and endure the Ice Age. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, fire is absolutely necessary for human civilization. It's like the thing that makes so many other layers of technology possible. You you couldn't have it without fire. Yeah. You certainly couldn't have metalworking or, you know, culinary advancements or any of this stuff. Yeah, it is really hard to overstate the importance of of uh, of our ancestors uh mastery of fire on the technological ladder it is uh what probably like rung number 2 maybe rung number 1 is tool uh, uh manufacturing mm-hmm. to tool construction well yeah i mean so you can you can make stone tools without fire mm-hmm. you know you can chip stone tools and you can like uh wrap them together with vines and things like that but what are the ways that we primarily characterize uh, technology stages after that? I mean, the big ones are like what types of metalworking humans are capable right. of, all totally dependent on fire. All, you know, basically all chemistry is dependent on fire. Yeah, I mean, I always come back again to the example of the uh, the hot water heater mm-hmm. in my house. Like my house, uh, a lot of what goes on there depends on this tiny fire that is maintained by a machine. The pilot light in there, you know, it's uh-huh. like it's like a little uh, little fire demon that lives in my house. <laughs> uh, always makes me think of the, the Miyazaki film, yes. uh, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, uh-huh. with, uh, with the fire demon that lives in the hearth, uh, which is ultimately a, a yeah, this is a good one to come back to in this episode because that sums up a lot about the uh, uh, the nature of fire, the precious nature of fire. So we know that fire occurs naturally, but this must make you wonder, okay, so there must there was a period that was a gap between humans just encountering natural fires and reacting to them versus humans making their own fire out of nothing. Uh, So, like, what do we have in between? Well, the first step is just possession of the fire, Mm -hmm. not having the ability to recreate it, but figuring out how to keep it uh, once it has been encountered in the wild, Uh, you know, bringing back this precious thing and cultivating it. So uh, how far back does this go in our history? Well, according to the 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World uh, by uh, Brian M. Fagan, uh, and in this case, the entry is also uh, also features work by the contributor Stephen. Uh, uh, Mithin, uh, they point out that finding evidence of prehistoric campfires is difficult because they, uh, in many cases, leave no trace that we can find today. Right. And we have to avoid mistaking naturally occurring fires for fires created or maintained by humans. Now, um, one uh, an author here that we're going to come back to again and again uh, is uh, Jamie uh, Wisniak, who wrote an excellent paper, uh, Matches the Manufacture of Fire in 2005 for the Indian Journal of Chemical Technology. And in that, uh, Wisniak mentions that archaeological evidence suggests that the controlled use of fire may date back uh, 500,000 years. And this evidence would uh, would be from uh, Beach's Pit in Norfolk, England. Uh, and the, the evidence here, according to Fagan and Mithen, is based on the fact that it shows, uh, in addition to other signs of habitation, areas of heavily burnt soil too intense and localized to be natural. Okay, so you imagine like fires occur in nature. Sometimes there's lightning and a forest catches fire. But the fire kind of like sweeps through and moves on once most of the fuel is used up. In a naturally occurring setting, you wouldn't expect to have a fire burning in exactly the same one spot for a long period of time. Right, yes. Something unnatural is happening here if if there seems to be a fire here, uh, let's say, every day for a week. That's that's suspect. Uh, Every day for a month or just even 
periodically over the course of, uh, of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet Fagan and Mithin uh, point to another older example. And I believe as of this recording, it is still the oldest um, uh, example that is, uh, that is uh, presented for um, a, uh, an unnatural fire on this planet. And that is a 1.6 million year old site in Kenya. Uh, this was discovered in 2005, uh, which uh, is the same year as Wisniak's paper, but I'm guessing that's the reason that he does not mention that in his work. I mean, mm-hmm. there's probably, you know, given the overlap and or gap there uh, between those publications, uh, he may have missed that. Mm-hmm. But this uh, this finding, this 1.6 million year old, year old site in Kenya, it's based on experimental studies that show that a regularly maintained campfire will do two things. It will oxidize soil to depths of up to 6 inches or 15 centimeters, and the magnetic properties of the underlying soil may be altered, resulting in a, in a different magnetic property orientation compared to sites of natural uh, fire or uh, sites where there is no burning at all. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, to be specific, this is uh, referred to as the FXJJ20 site in Kubifora, Kenya. Okay, so if this is correct, it, it looks like up to 1.6 million years ago, some kind of human ancestor had captured fire from mm-hmm. some source and had made a fire pit that they were able to maintain for long periods of time. Right. And I think specifically it's thought that this would have been uh, Australopithecus robustus and or Homo erectus. But again, just because you have it doesn't mean you can, uh, of, of course, fully utilize it. And it definitely doesn't mean that you can create it yourself. Uh, just in terms of, of hosting the fire, uh, distinctive hearths within caves don't show up till apparently 60,000 years ago. And the use of fire to manage landscape pops up roughly uh, 9,500 BCE in Europe. But, of course, once you have a fire, what are people going to do with it? They are going to tinker with it. They are going to poke it with sticks. We still can't resist uh, the temptation to to poke around in a fire and experiment with its properties and its power and its heat. Of course. And uh, there's actually a wonderful uh, line. Uh, this is from the Greek writer Aeschylus who described fire as, quote, a teacher in every skill and a means to mighty ends. Mm. And ultimately, this is why the gift or theft of fire from the gods factors into various myth cycles, right? From from that of Prometheus in the Greek tradition to the mythic fire driller in Chinese mythology. Uh, I was also reading of uh, one, uh, this is a, a Lakota myth, uh, in which Coyote steals the fire from a trio of witches. And to escape them, uh, it, the fire is passed from animal to animal as the witches chase after them. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, Till an old frog is cornered by the witches and spits the burning brand into a stump and the stump swallows it. Uh, And, of course, uh, one can't help but think of, you know, the the, the places you might keep a fire. You might uh, uh, grow a fire anew, uh, such as uh, an old stump. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a a tradition for keeping a fire is putting it inside a hollowed out tree, right? Yeah. Uh, That, by the way, that detail was from uh, Mark Warren on medicinebow.net. Uh, but uh, but certainly you find other tales of, uh, of of fire origins again thefts from the gods gifts of the gods and the titans in various uh, myth cycles around the world even in the ancient world it's clearly recognized as something that is transformative of the humankind's role on the earth it's yeah. like that you know whether it's a gift from the gods or something stolen from the gods it's a thing that marks a transition point for what humans are and what they're capable of right yeah fire changed the world but it is one thing to again to wield captured fire another uh, thing entirely to generate it yourself and as Wisniak points out quote the step from the control of fire to its manufacture required hundreds of thousands of years and that is that is awe-inspiring to think about, that there's yeah. this, this long period of time in which fire remains this thing that may be captured, that may be cultivated, but the, the means of producing it uh, are, are not known to the individuals who use it. Think about – I don't know. I mean it, it's hard not to start imagining – the kinds of mythology that would give rise to, you mm-hmm. know, the, the idea that there is like almost this living thing, this substance kept among you that must always be fed or else your your livelihood is gone. Right. And, and again, thinking back on the fact that uh, we're talking about uh, ancient peoples that – that uh, typically did not stay in one spot for extended periods of time. They they would move around. And therefore, you had to, uh, you know, in the words of Cormac McCarthy, keep carrying the fire. Yeah. You would literally have 
have to bring some active portion of the fire with you. Uh, so per- perhaps you have like a main campfire, a main camp that that your your you know that's your base fire, but you still need to bring some of it with you if you're hoping to build another camp over here, or if you're packing up entirely, you have to bring some glowing ember of that with you and keep it vital until you can feed a new fire. Otherwise, it will go out, and then when and where will you acquire a new one? You'll have to get one from other beings that are cultivating fire or just you know, wait until you can find a wildfire to steal from. If you wait until you find a wildfire, I mean, you, you, you might be waiting past the end of your life. Right. And then also, I mean, to, to, you know, to state the obvious too, like wildfires uh, are inherently dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you know, that is that's very much like stealing the, the, the meat from the lion there. All right, we should take a break, but when we come back, we will talk more about technology for carrying the fire. All right, we're back. So we've been talking about this long period of of human uh, prehistory where Mm -hmm. humans clearly had control of fire in some way, but we did not have the means to manufacture fire from nothing. So if a fire goes out, you are out of luck. We do not have the technology to make a new fire from, from no previously existing fire. So you might have something burning that you've managed to acquire at some point. Your ancestors managed to acquire at some point from a forest fire or a lightning strike or whatever. And, and now you've just got to keep this fire fed because it's, it's your livelihood. It's how you survive. But let's say you needed to move from one place to another. How do you do that? Like how do you make sure that you can always keep the fire burning when you're on the go? Yeah, and, and again, we come back to the idea that management of fire is is a means of turning an event into something that is at least mostly tangible mm-hmm. uh, that then can be transported. Uh, so, yeah, I, I was looking around on this, looking for, uh, you know, some some ideas about how this was carried out. And uh, I ran across uh, some writings by uh, Walter Ho, who was a Smithsonian ethnologist of the early 20th century, writing in Fire as an Agent in Human Culture, Issue 139. And he explored this very topic and provided some potential answers based on um, known examples of fire preservation from uh, generally from existing or very recent uh, societies. Okay, so these examples would have been among societies that did have the means to manufacture fire again if they lost it. But even if you have those means, sometimes keeping a fire going can be advantageous, right? Can be easier than trying to laboriously strike a new fire, maybe when conditions are bad. Right. Yeah. And uh, and. Indeed, he, he, he points out that keeping a fire going like this and the necessity of keeping a fire going was probably the beginning of the, quote, enormous fuel industries of the day. Uh, so, so yeah, you're just imagining the, these people just having to continually feed it. Just it's, it's this thing that will never – its hunger will never stop. If its, mm-hmm. hunger, uh, it, its hunger dies when it dies and when it dies, especially if you're in a, a northern climate or in the, the middle of winter, uh, that may be the death of your people as well. Uh, so he, uh, the author looked to several examples of fire preservation in more recent societies, and uh, these are a few that I think shed some interesting light. One, uh, he points to uh, the uh, Andaman Islands. Uh, this is in the Bay of Bengal, uh, where they hollow out a tree trunk and set it on fire, and the fire remains under accumulated ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, says, writes that the Cherokee would bury fire in the ground in a fire cache. And this was um, also practiced by other groups of native peoples uh, in the Americas as well. And uh, this is definitely an example, though, where um, they certainly had fire creation technology. They could make fire themselves. But uh, this is uh, likely more about preventing the necessity of a drawn-out flint and pyrites method of striking a spark, getting the spark going. Uh, you know, and it reveals possible ways of carrying the fire in the days before such techniques as well. Okay, but th- those would have been mainly about preserving fire in place. What about transporting fire from one place to another? Yeah, and this is uh, this is trickier than uh, than I think some of us might think because you basically have to ensure that it is it is going that is still burning. There's still burning there. Mm-hmm. The, the heat uh, and or the flame is maintained, but you have to ensure that it's burning in a slow combustion fuel mm-hmm. uh, because, again, it is hungry. Uh, you almost need the, the fire to be in a state of kind of suspended animation mm-hmm. uh, but not dead. 
So uh, some of the ones he points to here, the Manabut Islands uh, method in which a soft husk material from a ripe coconut is placed in a coconut shell with a red-hot ember. And here he writes it will smolder for three to four days and can be brought on voyages across the water uh, for fires uh, in any place that they land. Uh, the uh, Osaji. I was just trying to imagine trying to take fire with you on a wooden boat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he also points to the Osaji tribes people of North America who used a fungus tinder. Tinder uh, for anyone is in tinderbox. This is, of course, the uh, you know the, the flammable material, generally like a fine material uh, that you, you know that you can then catch fire uh, with a, with a spark. That'll come back again in something I want to talk about in a minute. Oh yes, absolutely. Now the uh, uh, this tinder would be from inside of a hollow tree placed between two muscle shells and bound with cords. Again, uh, it will last several days like this. And he also pointed to contemporary fishermen of uh, Cape uh, Finisterre off the coast of Spain who would use a fire horn. This would be like a cow horn in which uh, decayed wood or fungus is placed for tinder and uh, one end of the horn is stoppered. And so a fisherman could, you know, you could have the the, the ember uh, in there and the fisherman could then blow on one end to produce fire to light a smoke, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, on a fictional note, some of you may be fans of the uh, the book The Clan of the Cave Bear by Gene M. Owl. Uh, again, it's a fictional novel, but it's set in prehistoric times. Uh, I was talking uh, to my wife a little bit about this, and she remembered there being uh, passages dealing with the, the preservation of fire and bringing fire from one place to, to another. And so I looked it up, and, and in it, the author describes Neanderthals using uh, uh, these kind of techniques for this reason. Quote, it was easier to take a coal from one campfire and keep it alive to start the next one than to try to start a new fire each evening with possibly inadequate materials. And then on top of this, the author um, presents some some supernatural ideas that the, the tribe engages in. The idea that this fire then is connected to the home fire from which the coal was taken and that care of the coal in transit is trusted to a senior member of the tribe for its, its death would be a dire omen and a sign that the gods had abandoned them. Uh, the fact that the coal comes from a previous fire, it allows you to create kind of a genealogy of fires. Yeah. So again, this is a this is an older fictional uh, presentation of of how Neanderthals might or might not have engaged with fire, but it's still I think it's it's still pretty interesting. Okay, but we know that at some point humans come out of this period where you're just at the mercy of maintaining fires found in nature. At some point, our prehistoric ancestors, I guess, in the Stone Age, at some point came up with means of creating fires that didn't previously exist. Right. And one of the big ways of doing it was, of course, friction. Uh, We already mentioned the Chinese myth of the fire driller, and this is a a reference to uh, the bow fire drill, which is a means of creating friction. I mean, you could ultimately do the get some version of this by just taking like a stick, rubbing it between your palms, Mm -hmm. and having the end of the stick rub into, uh, you know, another uh, piece of wood. Yeah. then you would be able to produce heat via friction. Right, yeah. So the idea there is that yeah, the, the friction generated there heats up the substances. If it gets it up to the ignition point and there's enough access to oxygen around it, then it will catch fire. But obviously, I mean, if you've ever tried to do this, this is not easy. Right. This is a, an arduous, difficult task. Yes. It, it, sometimes it looks easy in films. <laughs> but I don't know. I've, I've certainly seen some films that really, I think, kind of drive home the, the tedious nature of using a, 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 a fire drill to start a blaze mm-hmm. um, because you're going to get the you're, you're creating the, the heat via the friction and then you need to transfer that heat into some tinder and then build from there. Right. Uh, because another thing is if you ever tried to like light a large piece of wood on fire, it doesn't easily catch fire. It's much easier to uh, start a fire in what we, we mentioned earlier, tinder, little tiny pieces of flammable material, which for multiple material reasons catch fire easier. I, one just being that they're, you know, by being smaller, they're more surrounded by oxygen and all that. Yeah. So the technology of the fire drill uh, pops up in various places. For instance, you'll find it in ancient Egypt for sure. Uh, it, it's one of the belongings found among uh, uh, in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Uh, this would have been the 14th century BCE. Uh, but uh, it apparently goes back at least before the Indus Valley civilization to the uh, the Mergar uh, civilization that existed between the 4th and 5th millennium BCE. 
You're talking about the bow drill there. Yes, the bow yeah. drill. So the, the invention of friction-based fire creation is ultimately lost to history. But it's often speculated that um, in the case of the, the bow example, this is something that would have come up via woodwork, uh, especially cre- creating like a primitive drill uh, to um, uh, aided by a bow perhaps. Like people would have gradually realized, oh, uh, the, the same sort of heat that we – desire from a fire, I'm producing heat when uh, these sticks rub together. Um, perhaps we should explore that more. And then, you know, experimentation after an experimentation, uh, you finally get to some sort of uh, fire drill method that works. And then there is a, there's another method. There is a um, percussion method of generating a spark. And this, uh, nowadays, we think of this as flint and steel. In older days, this would have been pyrite and flint, mm-hmm. uh, which would have uh, done the same thing. So how exactly does this work? All right. So the, the basic idea is that rather than pure friction, uh, the hard flint edge shaves off a particle of the steel or pyrite uh, that exposes iron, which reacts with oxygen from the atmosphere. So uh, and flint and pyrite is just a slower version of what happens with flint and steel. But what it'll end up looking like is striking two pieces of rock together and creating a little spark. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would be trying to shoot that spark into some tinder that you had gathered. Yes, yeah, again, once you, all you're creating is like the initial, the initial spark and you need tinder then to get that going, turn that into a proper flame and then build from there. A fire, a true fire is truly built, uh, piece of fuel by piece of fuel, gradually from the small uh, to the large. Yeah, the, the, you have the tinder and then you have the kindling and then finally you have the fuel, the yes. firewood. Now, the, the, the tinder box, uh, for instance, is a long ver- used variation of this. It consisted of flint, fire steel and tinder which, uh, again, slow-burning fuel to catch the spark and produce a flame that can then be transferred somewhere else. But in either case, you produce the heat or the spark, and then you use that to get dry leaves or fungi going, uh, and this could serve as the beginnings of a proper fire. So this ties into uh, something that we've talked about on the show before, one of my favorite figures from prehistory, Otzi, the Iceman. Ah. So Otzi, if you're not familiar, is a natural mummy from Neolithic Europe, roughly from the late 4th millennium BCE, who was found preserved and partially frozen in a glacier in the Italian. Alps in the year 1991. Uh, and Otzi is such an absolutely fascinating historical find because the more we learn about him, the more thrilling mysteries accumulate. Like how did this Stone Age man end up so high up in the mountains? Where I mean he's way, way up mm-hmm. there where there's like not much of a reason to be up that high. Uh, what was he doing there? How did he die? Uh, and in answer to the last question, more recent analyses of his body, including CAT scans, have shown injuries indicating he was very likely killed by homicide with like an arrowhead lodged in his shoulder and some broken bones, I think. And then when you start examining his possessions, things get even more interesting. Like he has a rare and special kind of axe that indicates that he may have been some kind of, uh, you know, leader figure, Hmm. a high-status individual to have a metal axe like he did. I think it was a copper axe. But also at the same time, he has in his possession some kind of half-finished, half-constructed makeshift or damaged weapons and tools, and the mind just starts racing to fill in the possible scenarios that drove this guy up onto the glacier in what appears to be hasty preparation for battle, maybe, (laughs) and whatever ultimately killed him. I mean, we just don't know, but uh, I think in the last couple of years, there was somebody who made a prehistoric action movie imagining the last days of Otzi. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I was interested in the idea. Uh, But anyway, whatever happened uh, to him, uh, he came up in a previous episode of Invention because it was the episode on chewing gum and we discovered that Otzi had in his possession a lump of birch bark tar and it's been hypothesized that he might have used this tar as a kind of primitive chewing gum. But anyway, uh, so we mentioned Otzi's tools and belongings and one of the other things found on the Iceman's belt was a Neolithic fire-making kit and it's very much along the lines we've just been discussing. So his kit included a bar-shaped flint probably used as a strike light uh, as well as particles of pyrite. I think from what I've read, he did not actually have a large piece of pyrite with him. But in this leather pouch where he had his flint, there were particles of pyrite indicating he Mm. maybe at some point had pyrite in there for striking off the sparks. 
He also had a small amount with him of a, a kind of fluffy fungus, which was probably used as tinder. According to the authors uh, Dick Stapert and Leica Johansson in their paper Flint and Pyrite, Making Fire in the Stone Age in the journal Antiquity, this fungus was probably Fomes fomentarius, which is also known as tinder fungus. And mm. it, it's this fungus that pr- produces a fruiting body which grows in a shape somewhat like a horse's hoof off the side of a tree tree trunk and it has widely been used as soft organic material to uh, serve as tinder uh, or kindling for a fire. But that's not all because uh, as we discussed already, even if you had the means to strike a friction fire, the task would often take a lot of time or be difficult under unfavorable environmental conditions, say if it was cold and wet outside or maybe if you were on a glacier. Yeah. Uh, so Oatsy had another option to carry the fire. Uh, to quote from an enumeration of Oatsy's belongings from the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology, which is where – that's the museum where Oatsy is now kept. Oatsy had, quote, two birch bark containers, cylindrical pots measuring 15 to 18 centimeters in diameter and approximately 20 centimeters high. They were found near the mummy. They were made from a single piece of bark and stitched together with lime tree bast. The round piece of birch bark, which served as the base, was also stitched on. The interior of one of the vessels was blackened and contained freshly picked Norway maple leaves and charcoal fragments. It is assumed that Oatsy wrapped charcoal embers in the leaves and carried them in the birch bark container. In this way, the embers could be kept for several hours and fanned into fire in a few seconds. Huh. So he had a fire-making hack. Obviously, you know, he had the flint and at some point had pyrite. Uh, so he could strike a fire if he needed to, but that's hard work. It's not always going to – it's going to be difficult to do, especially it's going to be difficult to do quickly. Uh, and you, you might imagine given whatever kind of injuries and, and weapons situation was going on, he might have been in a, in a hurry, maybe chasing people or being chased by people or, or who knows what. So he's got an ember with him and that's if he needs to start a fire immediately, he can just pull that out and, and have a fire in seconds. I hope all the dungeon masters out there are listening to this and will really put their players um, uh, through the ringer the next time they go to make camp and they need a fire. Don't just let them say, and we make a fire. Make, make them work <laughs> for it. <laughs> Ask them what what are they going to use to make the fire? What kind of fuel are they going to gather, uh, etc. And then by the end of it, maybe you'll you'll enforce uh, uh, some some uh, means of transporting embers uh, from uh, today's camp to the next if they really want that long rest. How much better is it in D anD D to have a fire than a camp without a fire? Do you get like <laughs> special benefits? I mean, I guess it, it's going to depend. It's going to depend on a number of factors. Oh, uh, okay. But uh, also, I think a lot of times it's going to depend on what the, the dungeon master's plotting. You know, okay. like if, if you want to put them through environmental uh, hell, then yeah, say that it's super cold and you've got to get that fire going and to stay warm, and then you can use it as an excuse to attract uh, uh, villains to the camp. I mean, yeah, there's a. And there's so much to do, right? Because the, the campfire is so pivotal to the human experience, to human history, and to our story making. Uh, there's so many things you can do it. I mean, I've, I've I've heard it put forward that you know just about any any tale that we tell is a is a story about campfires. Uh, at least in a vague sense. Yeah. So uh, anyway, from all of this, you can tell why it's advantageous to reserve that precious hot coal rather than to go through all these steps every time you need to make a camp. Uh, but of course, another way to transfer fire from the home fire to other places touches on that, again, that long time human pastime of just poking sticks around in a fire. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Because truly, is there anything better? We all want to do it. We all need to do it. We find a good stick and we start prodding the hot embers till we've contracted the miracle flame onto the stick, and then, you know, we probably wave it around at least a little bit. And by the way, speaking of, um, of, of poking around in, in a fire with sticks, I want to come back for, uh, to a second to fireworks hmm. uh, because this is apparently the genesis of fireworks as well. Because if you have ever thrown bamboo into a fire, uh, you have uh, probably observed what happens when the heat causes the, the trapped air inside bamboo to rapidly expand. 
producing a popping sound. Uh, so fireworks are a chemical uh, attempt to equal this amusement. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. But outside of fireworks and amusement, poking a stick into a fire is a good way to get a little bit of fire and move it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But if, especially if you're in a hurry, some sticks and twigs are going to work better than others. Some choices are going to burn too quickly. Others are going to be too resistant to burning. Fortunately, uh, the human masters of fire knew a thing or two about uh, other substances, substances that they inevitably tested with fire as well. How will this burn? What happens when we put this into the campfire? Certain substances ignited in the presence of a flame and therefore prove useful. So in this, we finally reach the origins, the ancient uh, misty origins of the matchstick uh, in the form of the sulfur match. Right. We're not to the friction match yet, but we are now to the chemical match. So maybe we should take a break and then when we come back, we can discuss sulfur and matches. All right, we're back. So a sulfur match is as simple as it sounds. It is a a tiny stick, really a a splinter uh, that has been dipped in sulfur. Uh, and the sulfur ignites easily, and therefore it is it is essentially a match without the striking ability. So in this, uh, I want to come back to what uh, that quote from Walter Ho earlier about campfires being the beginning of that enormous fuel industry. Because one, one can easily imagine that this doesn't just mean the wholesale harvesting of wood in the surrounding area to, to maintain a fire. Mm-hmm. Just think of how we adapt uh, to the use of a home fireplace or a backyard grill. Uh, do you make uh, panes to keep some dry logs on hand for your fireplace? Uh, do you split them ahead of time? Do you make sure you have varied sizes on hand? Do you stockpile uh, bits of kindling uh, or tinder to get it going? Do you have like, do you, do you, do you point out uh, you know, bits of cardboard that look useful and stick those aside for later? Uh, because that's, that's part of the process here. I will say of, uh, of all the hard labor I've, I've ever tried out, I think one of the most fun was splitting firewood. Yeah. I really enjoy that. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that gets really into backbreaking work if you have to keep doing it over and over a lot. But just doing a little splitting of firewood, I, I found to be extremely enjoyable. So there might maybe there's something primal in that because when you're doing that, when you're splitting the wood, even you are you are manufacturing something. You know, you uh-huh. are you you are making fuel. The logs of your fire are a product of human remaking, and we mainly think of fuel as a product of reduction. Uh, you know, taking the tree, chopping it up into pieces, or picking up the splinters, et cetera, gathering uh, 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 little sticks and whatnot. But uh, the process uh, can also involve the combination of elements, and so. In this, we come to the sulfur match, an early invention to aid in the transfer of fire from uh, from the hearth or from the campfire uh, or from a, even a candle to some other uh, medium. And these were uh, initially the early matches were simply just splinters with you know nothing else on them, just a little stick that you could use. Uh, but it was found that you could dip the splinter in, say, sulfur to create a splinter of kindling that ignites readily when touched to uh, to flame, and then burns down the length of that splinter uh, and allows you to you know say move move a little fire from one part of the camp to the other, from one part of the home to the other. Yes. Uh, Now, we mentioned this earlier, but I just want to stress again so as not to have any confusion that we're not talking about standalone friction strike matches here. Those wouldn't come until later. What we're talking about with these early sulfur matches would be things that are ignited by the heat of a pre-existing flame. Right. Or maybe maybe easily catch fire as a kind of chemically enhanced tinder. Yeah, I'd like to come back to the tinderbox, the idea of getting the, you know, getting the spark, getting the spark going just a little bit in the tinder, and then you could use a sulfur match to uh, take it up to the next level and then transfer it uh, somewhere else to burn. Right, because that's one thing that the sulfur really helps with. It suddenly gets you a big burst of flame out of a little initial heat. Yes. So again, these are sticks dipped in sulfur. Uh, and, and Wisniak writes that sulfur tip matches were already in use in China by the 6th century CE. According to Science and Civilization in China by Joseph Needham from 1962, uh, this very much seems to be the case. He points uh, as well to Thao Ku's Records of the Unworldly and the Strange from the year 950. <laughs> Quote, 
If there occurs an emergency at night, it may take some time to make a light to light a lamp. But an ingenious man devised a system of impregnating little sticks of pine wood with sulfur and storing them for ready use. At the slightest touch of fire, they burst into flame. One gets a little flame like an ear of corn. This marvelous thing was formerly called a light-bringing slave, or yingquang nu. But afterwards, when it became an article of commerce, its name was changed to fire inch stick, or uh, hu shun. And then he adds that in uh, 1366, uh, an author by the name of Thao Sung wrote about the invention uh, and mentioned that it was sometimes credited to the people of Hengqiao, uh, where the writings uh, uh, where the writings of uh, Marco Polo described its sale. This would have been in the um, uh, 13th, early 14th century. But uh, Sung writes that it was actually the uh, uh, the invention of impoverished court ladies of uh, the northern Qi in uh, five. 577 during a conquest by the empire of the Sioux. That's interesting. And I love that quote by Talku, but I wonder what it, what is being translated as ear of corn there? Because I, I know Talku was not talking about maize, hmm. right? Maize wouldn't have been in China at the time, right? Oh, that's a, an interesting point. Yeah. Though I think all kinds of grains used to just be called corn. Right. So, so maybe that's just the idea that the, the flame, the resulting flame after the spark is like this tiny kernel yeah. of, uh, or this tiny like, seed. And it is very much. or something. Yeah. yeah. And it is very much like a seed, right? Because totally. now it may be planted somewhere else where it may grow. And of course, the idea that it was originally called a light-bringing slave yes. <laughs> uh, is, uh, is also interesting. Now, um, Needham added that there's, um, there's meanwhile, according to him, no positive evidence of sulfur matches showing up in Europe before 1530, uh, where they were uh, uh, then used up through the 18th century. Uh, and, the, and they were, during this time, a, a prime means of transferring the flame from a tinderbox to another fuel. But uh, I have to note that uh, Wisniak writes of the Romans using sulfur matches. Uh, he mentions first century Roman historian Pliny the Elder's writings in the Natural History. And indeed, uh, Pliny mentions matches, at least in, in the, the translation, uh, and this would be the um, – the Bostock and Riley translation. Yes, the Bostock and Riley uh, translation. Uh, there, there is mention of of sulfur certainly, and then uh, sulfur matches. So he, there, there's a big section here where he's going on and on about sulfur. He writes that there are four kinds of sulfur. Quote: The fourth kind is used in the preparation of matches, more particularly. Uh, unquote. Yeah, I, I wonder. I, I don't have the Latin expertise to investigate this myself, but I wonder if this could be an issue with whatever Latin term Bostock and Riley are translating as the English word matches there. Uh, because, uh, I, I mean, I'm wondering if, like, this could be a misleading use of the English word matches because Pliny does not describe what he's talking about. He doesn't further explain anything. He just says sulfur is used in the preparation of and then whatever this noun is. There's another noun I know we'll come back to in a second, sulfurata, and I don't know if that's the noun he uses in Latin there. Yeah, uh, yeah, sulfurata. Uh, I ran across this. There's a there's a, a paper, Sulfur for Broken Glass, by H. J. Leon in Transactions and Proceedings of the American uh, Philological uh, Association, Volume seventy two, and this is from nineteen forty one. But it it ruminates on the use of this word uh, sulfurata in the writings of the first century Roman poet uh, Martial, and in this uh, use, H. Uh, J. Leon believed uh, that uh, sulfurata uh, clearly meant quotes sulfur-tipped pieces of wood to be used for lighting fires. Uh-huh. In, in the, this, uh, this piece, he is, he is extremely um, confident that this is what is being described. But I love the other stuff that Pliny seems to be more interested in sulfur for, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Most of what Pliny's talking about are medicinal uses for sulfur. <laughs> uh, one, for instance, uh, quote, in addition to these several uses, sulfur is of remarkable virtue that if it is thrown upon the fire, it will at once detect by the smell whether or not a person is subject to epilepsy. Hmm. Uh, and then he, he, he also writes, sulfur has its place among other religious ceremonies being used as a fumigation for purifying houses. Its virtues are also to be perceived in certain hot mineral waters, and there is no substance that ignites more readily, a proof that there is in it a great affinity to fire. 
Well, he's right about that part. I mm-hmm. would be very surprised if he's correct about the epilepsy thing. Right. Now, now Needham, I want to come back to him for a second. Now, he was clearly writing with a focus on, on China. Uh, and uh, the, the curious thing is, though, that he cites Pliny's writing several times in his book when discussing Chinese inventions and, uh, you know, comparing what was known in, uh, among the Romans, such as, uh, you know, optics and burning glasses, glasses you use to magnify light and create uh, uh, fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure why he doesn't mention the sulfur matches, uh, again, unless it's a translation issue. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that'll have to remain an open question for now. So at any rate, it would seem like we're looking at two possibilities here. One is that the sulfur match was a Chinese invention that made its way to Rome during the the first century of its invention. And uh, while there was little direct contact between China and Rome, there was trade through uh, intermediary empires. So one can imagine a useful and simple technology like this could spread pretty quickly, um, you know, even at that time. Uh Uh-huh. The other possibility, and I have to stress that I do not see anyone actually making this claim, would be that the sulfur match was independently invented in both regions, Mm -hmm. which is just, of course, possible because – Sure. Because we're not talking about – I mean, just that's just the nature of invention. If you've mentioned, listened to our show, like that's, that's almost always a possibility. Um, however, I, I really didn't run across anybody arguing for that. It seems like the Chinese origin – tends to be stressed mm-hmm. and tends to be uh, the, the one people point to. And this Roman mention of matches, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it's, it's curious. Uh, by the way, when I was looking into all this about, um, you know, what kind of contact was there between Rome and, uh, and China during the first century CE, I, I ran across a, a, an interesting hypothesis that was put forward by uh, sinologist Homer H. Dubbs, uh, who lived 1892 through 1960. He's known for translating Bangu's Book of Han. And he apparently speculated that Roman prisoners of war who were transferred to the eastern border of the Parthian Empire might later have actually clashed with Han troops, pointing to Chinese accounts of 100 soldiers in uh, what was described as fish-scale formation that fought at the Battle of uh, Zhizhi in 36 BCE. Now, this is not proven, uh, and there's no modern evidence, DNA or otherwise, to back it up. Uh, And it also does not tie into the history of matches at all. (laughs) Uh, But I I found that to just be one of these sort of fascinating um, hypotheses that come up. And also, there's their movie right there. Um, Sure. This lost um, 100 Roman uh, soldiers that wind up in China fighting a battle. Uh I'd pay to see that. So the Parthian Empire would have been in between – that would be like roughly Persian territory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Basically, this would be one of the intermediary empires discussed, Uh like generally one of the regions through which things traveled and through which these two far-flung empires would interact with each other, uh, you know, even if it was only as a matter of trade. Hmm. So – here's the thing though. If the Romans had sulfur matches and then the sulfur match – really disappeared for hundreds and hundreds of years, that that just seems kind of hard, hard to believe. Like certainly there were technologies, Roman technologies that were lost uh, for, uh, for a long time, such as Roman cement, uh, so we mentioned in our, our episodes on roads. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to imagine something like a sulfur match being forgotten uh, after the fall of Rome. Yeah, I don't know. That, that's strange. I mean uh... – I don't know anything about the availability of sulfur throughout uh, throughout Europe in the Middle Ages. Was it scarce? I'm not sure. Hmm. At any rate, I don't want to. I don't want to cast any doubt on the Chinese origin of the sulfur match. That mm-hmm. does seem to be the uh, the origin of the invention. Uh, however, this is just the beginning of the story. There's there's still so much more that has to happen before this sulfur match, this uh, sulfur tipped uh, piece of kindling eventually transforms into the modern strike match, the modern safety match that we we know and take for granted today. I'm so excited to keep playing with matches. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, uh, we would obviously love to hear from anyone out there because everyone has an experience with matches, with fire, with just the human mastery of fire. And hopefully, just even so far, we've forced you to rethink how you how we use fire, how we depend on fire, and the role fire has played in human history and in the history of invention. 
If you want to check out other episodes of this show, you can find them wherever you get your podcast. If you go to inventionpod.com, that'll direct you uh, to the iHeart page where you can download the eps. Uh, but wherever you get the show, just make sure that you subscribe and make sure that you rate and review because that really helps out the show. And hey, through good old-fashioned human inter- interaction, just tell people about the show. Uh, that is ultimately the best way that it spreads. Spread the fire. Yeah. Huge thanks, as always, to our awesome audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 